Hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Anal Podcast. I am your host, Sebastian Starr. And today, I wanted to take a bit of a different direction with my analysis. So usually, when I do these solo analysis, I'm either analyzing a song or I'm going very in-depth about an artist that I favor. But I've noticed something about myself recently that I have become borderline obsessed with the musical Hamilton. So I thought I would take some time to talk about that production on a musical standpoint. I know when it comes to most people and whenever they discuss Hamilton the musical, they always talk about the performance, the artistry of Lin-Manuel Miranda, who plays Alexander Hamilton, the main character. He also wrote the entire performance, all of the songs. Um, he didn't compose the music, however. Uh, he left that up to somebody else, but he is the brains behind the genius of the show. And then, of course, you have iconic characters, Davey Diggs, uh, Leslie Odom Jr., Jasmine Jones, uh, Philippa Soam. Uh, and all of these people play their own roles very... I can't even say well it's such an understatement very gracefully very elegantly very iconically and even still now today with all of the stuff um, involving the quarantine the pandemic everyone's doing everything via zoom or via video chat you'll still find videos of the original cast performing these songs for you know the news or just for fans or just anywhere on social media they're discussing this still and I'm I'm well aware that um, in the last couple of years before the pandemic broke out, um, that the Broadway performance, the musical, had been overdone by, you know, a variety of other cast members. But the original cast is still very much living and breathing the world of Hamilton. Now, as far as my personal connection with it, um, I remember back in 2016, um, I was on Instagram and I was scrolling and I found... Um, some people who had edited the song Wait For It, who, that, which is performed by uh, Leslie Odom Jr. Um, but they tagged it with clips from Steven Universe. Now, I love to death Steven Universe. Uh, in 2016, when the show was kind of at its peak, I was watching it. I was obsessed with it. I was following it as much as I possibly could. Me and my friends were, you know, talking about it and discussing it very in-depth and in detail uh, just in our casual, everyday conversation. So um, they took the song Wait For It, which is kind of smack dab in the middle of Act 1 of Hamilton, and they clipped it with clips from the show, and it kind of rolled together pretty well. And, of course, me not knowing what Hamilton was, um, just knowing people were raving about it in 2016. So I decided to just, you know, go back and be like, what's all the buzz about? You know, what's everyone talking about? What's the big deal? And I took the time to listen to the soundtrack. Now, I probably got through just act one of the soundtrack. I, I didn't complete the entire program via the soundtrack back in 2016. But I did listen to act one. As far, as far as my memory is concerned, that's as far as I got. And I remember having wait for it on my phone. And I would listen to it regularly. So even before I saw... Hamilton. I was obsessed with that song. I was obsessed with that, those lyrics, that singer, 
you know, it was such a beautiful song, and it fit so well with maybe not what I was personally experiencing, but this hovering feeling of, and I think a lot of young people in my generation can relate to this, this feeling of you see everyone else in the world kind of moving on without you. They're uh, reaching their goals. They're reaching success. They're doing really well for themselves. They're either your age or close to it. You may have had more experience or more of a privilege. Maybe you are higher, uh, better educated, or um, you know you had you know more opportunities to find work or intern or whatever the case may be. But these other people, whether they had those same opportunities or not, they're excelling past you. And I think when I think about the lyrics to "Wait for It" specifically, which probably is like one of my favorite songs out of the entire program. Um, the lines that really, really stick out to me, which I'm sure these lines will stick out to anybody. Um, I am the one thing in life I can't control. I am inevitable. I am an original. I'm not falling behind or running late. I'm not standing still. I am lying in wait. That entire part speaks to like my soul core existence that Regardless of what everyone else is doing, yes, they're excelling, yes, they're, they're pursuing their dreams, and yes, they may be, you know, dipping their toe in that pool of success, but right now, you're wondering when is going to be your time to shine. When are you going to have that moment of, I'm right where I want to be, but you have to have patience, determination, and motivation to get to that point. So in, in, in uh, regards to that, and just that entire, keeping that in mind moving forward, when I finally got a chance to see Hamilton, of course, I probably saw it at the same time everybody else saw it, of course, when it was available on Disney+. Plus, um, I was like, okay, you know what, I've, been, uh, I've had this play, uh, this musical kind of running through my head for a couple of years, and let's see what all the, let's see what all the hype is about. Because I knew people back in college who you know, posting Hamilton quotes on their doors in their dormitories. They had the posters. They had the soundtracks. They were crazy obsessed with it. And again, I only made it to part one of the soundtrack. I didn't listen to part two. So there's a lot of new information that's coming at me as I'm watching the show unravel. But even still, the the dramatic difference in just listening to the soundtrack, and then watching the performance is what I think really sold people on the greatness of Hamilton. And, of course, being a person of color, I understand completely that the historical figures in Hamilton were not for my benefit. The only person who was probably rooting for me, uh, as far as I understand, and as far as the musical goes... I have not done my own independent research on any of these individuals, so I'm just going off of what I've seen and what I've heard via the musical Hamilton, so I could be wrong. The only motherfucker that was on my team was probably John Lawrence because he literally says in uh, my shot, uh, we will never be truly free until those in bondage have the same rights as you and me. And throughout the entire first act, of the show. Everything that this nigga was trying to do had everything to do with abolishing slavery and making slaves 
give slaves human rights, make sure all men are free, just like it says in the Constitution. So as far as I know, he's the only one playing for my team. Everybody else is up in the air. So um, so I'm going to dive into a couple of lyrics here just to give, again, we're, we're doing the music of Hamilton. We're not doing the performances or, you know, the actual act itself. But I just wanted to clarify where my obsession started and where it is now because, like I said, I've only heard it up until this past year when I got to actually watch it and I completely understand the level of obsession with it. Um, and I'm sorry, before I dive into these lyrics, I wanted to say one more thing. Uh, as far as the story goes and the inspiration behind that story, you can literally watch Hamilton and think out loud or say to yourself, man, this country was really founded by rebels. Everyone on the team of the United States in the 17, late 17, early 1800s, were all rebel, except for Aaron Burr. Everybody else was 100% rebellion. Nobody wanted to follow the rules. And that was really the entire point. That was the entire point of the fight, is we want to disconnect from the lands that have kept us to, like, they've dictated everything that we've done. They dictate how much we spend, they dictate where we spend our money, they dictate you know, how we live our lives, the clothes that we wear, the shoes that we wear, the food that we eat. Everything is determined by one person. The entire point of us leaving from the union um, and forming our own nation was that we didn't have to live by anyone else's rules or standards anymore. That's a rebel. That's rebellion. And literally... That's what they refer to themselves as, the rebellion. So in this day and age with everything that's been happening now, and regardless of where the country is going to go, I think it is very, very important that people keep in mind that this entire country was founded by rebels. Yes, they were slave traders, slave owners, rapists, socialists. Um, they were ignorant to a degree. They, But they had... They had a goal in mind that we are not going to be controlled by the hierarchy. And so for people to, to come out now and preaching that, you know, rioting, protesting, fighting, violence isn't going to solve the problems, history will prove to you that literally that's the only thing that worked. Rioting, fighting, violence, and rebelling against the system. So for anybody who is considering, you know, what to do about the social injustice problem, history has already shown you the solution that works. So the only thing left to do would to be to follow that system and hope for the best possible outcome. But that's just me. I'm not here to influence nobody. I'm just telling you my two cents. But anyway, so... Uh, I was listening to, I listen to the soundtrack pretty much every day at this point. Like, I, I, get, I get songs stuck in my head, and I have to listen to that song in order to relieve myself. But then I got to keep it going. And at this point, I have built up this uh, fantasy world of my own cast for Hamilton. You know, people that I know or people who don't exist, just imaginary minds of, you know, so-and-so and such-and-such and, -so and, such and this, that, and third. So 
And and yeah, you can you can argue that that's a bit of an issue because I don't know too many people who do that. But I mean, that's just me. I do that with pretty much anything that I'm obsessed with. I'll either insert myself into the fantasy or I'll create my own version of it. And apparently that's like a disease or some shit. But who knows? I don't give a shit anyway. Um, so some of my favorite songs. Of course, we've already talked about Wait For It. And I will come back to that in just a minute. The Schuyler Sisters, which is the introduction to the three sisters that play an abundant role in the story. Um, Angelica Schuyler, who is the oldest. Um... Elizabeth Schuyler, a.k.a. Eliza Schuyler, who was the middle child, and then Peggy Schuyler, who was the youngest one. Uh, something that I found very interesting about the Schuyler sisters is when they're introduced, the woman who plays Peggy, who is Jasmine Jones, um, her voice is very toyish and, and, and petite. And it wasn't until way, 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 way after that I, was, I found out that Peggy Schuyler at the time of their introduction, which was, again, the late 1700s, she was a child. She was, like, 12 years old. And Elizabeth and Eliza were, like, in their late teens, early 20s type shit. So she's supposed to sound petite and, and childish because she's supposed to be a child. And then, just briefly, I'm going to skip all the way to the end or the middle toward the end where you, you see Jasmine Jones pop up again. But this time, she's playing Mariah Reynolds. Now, Mariah Reynolds is apparently the mistress of Alexander Hamilton, who had blatant affairs with her for an entire, like, month-and-a-half-long period while his wife and children were visiting her father in upstate New York, which I think that's dirty as hell. But, um, I mean, it is what it is. Scandals happen. I mean, and they've always happened. And, and, and again, this is just a part of history that I'm sure if you're a history buff, you already knew all the answers to the questions, you know, hypothetically speaking. Um, so Jasmine Jones, who plays Peggy Schuyler, and she also plays Mariah Reynolds. The thing that kind of blew my mind when I first saw Hamilton was the doubles as far as one actor playing two roles. So, for example, you have Jasmine Jones, who plays Peggy Schuyler. Peggy Schuyler has a very minimal part. Uh, she's in the introduction of the Schuyler sister. She's in Helpless. She's in Satisfied. And then she kind of pops up randomly throughout Act 1. At some point, Peggy Schuyler passes away, so her character is no more non-existent. They don't mention that in the show, but it is a part of the historic accuracy that she does pass away at, like, 21 from the common cold of all things. But, again, we're not talking about the history here um but jasmine jones when she comes back in in act two as mariah reynolds mariah reynolds again is a very minimal role but it does play a significant like part in the story because it comes up during the scene that involves the entire affair and then it comes up again a little later when hamilton is being accused of embezzlement um and I'm just blown away by the range that Jasmine Jones has vocally. Now, this is, this is a music perspective. If you ever get a chance to, to go on to Disney Plus or even just Google a clip of Jasmine Jones, Jasmine Cephas Jones. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. 
uh, C-E-P-H-A-S. I'm pretty sure that's Cephas. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. But Jasmine Cephas Jones as Peggy Schuyler, this petite, sweet, innocent, you know, childish voice that sounds 100% different than Mariah Reynolds, the woman in red, the temptress, the mistress. Her voice as Mariah Reynolds is seductive. It's deep. It's bluesy. It's intoxicating. It's exotic. And I'm not trying to sound like a pervert here, but you're playing a mistress. There has to be some form of mystery there. And she just blows it out of the damn water. Like, it blew my mind to know. And I didn't even peep this when I first saw it, that they were playing doubles. The only person I knew who was an obvious double double was David Diggs. He plays uh, Lafayette in Act 1 and Thomas Jefferson in Act 2, which he's so hard to hide the difference because his facial features and his physical description is so unique. So when you enter, when you introduce Lafayette in Act One, he has his hair up in a bun and he's speaking with a French accent. Obviously, he's playing Lafayette, a Frenchman. And then when you introduce him in Act Two, uh, Leslie Odom Jr., who plays Aaron Burr, his line is, uh, "Not so fast. Someone came along to resist him." him being Hamilton, pissed him off until we had a two-party system. You haven't met him yet. You haven't had the chance because he's been kicking ass as the ambassador of France. Now, I feel like he mentions the you haven't met him yet, you haven't had the chance to let the audience know that, yes, this is the exact same actor, but he's playing a different person. And when I first saw it, I was confused as hell because I was like, wait a minute, isn't that Lafayette? No. That's not Lafayette. That's the same person who plays Lafayette in Act 1, but in Act 2, he's Thomas Jefferson. And that's also why, you know, his wardrobe was completely different. In Act 1, as Lafayette, he is um, in military attire. Blue coats. He has the ruffles on his, not the ruffles, but, you know, the things that the sergeants have on their sleeves. And the, I don't know what they're called. He had that. Of course, his hair was up in the bun, all that good stuff. In Act 2, he has this super fly fuchsia suit with a big-ass fuchsia coat. Like, out of all the colors you could have picked, you picked fuchsia, which is like a, a soft berry pink. If you don't know what fuchsia is, it's, it's a soft berry pink, but it was like velvet, so it was glistening in the, in, the, in the light of the... I don't know, and it just threw me off completely, but that's beside the point. Um, so, yeah, almost all of the characters played doubles. Uh, Jasmine Jones... Uh, David Diggs, uh, Anthony Ramos, who plays uh, John Lawrence, and Philip Hamilton. Um, the only people who don't play doubles is um, Renee. I can't pronounce her last name, or I can't think of it right now, so excuse me. She plays Angelica. Of course, Philippa So, who plays Eliza. Leslie Odom, who plays Aaron Burr. Chris Jackson, who plays George Washington. And I'm forgetting. That's it. I don't know. Um, I'm not. <laughs> I should have did a bit more research before coming on here, but it is what it is. Um, another one of my absolute favorite songs, "The Battle of Yorktown," the introduction. Oh my God, that's what I was forgetting. Oak, and no, I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to pronounce this man's name because it is long. 
and it is a little complicated, and I'm a little ignorant, and any other time I would be more than happy to make an attempt at pronouncing this long-ass name, but I'm just, I don't have the energy today, and I apologize. But everyone calls him Oak, which is cool. I can get jiggy with that. Um, He plays Hercules Mulligan and James Madison. Hercules Mulligan is like a beefcake. He is buff. He's like the, the nice type of thick that you want in a thick man. So he has big puffy shoulders, strong thighs. And I'm pretty sure his stomach is like made out of iron. If you punch it, your hands would break type shit. Um, he has an explosive. Because I feel like at some point in Act 1, you forget about Hercules Mulligan. Who is a vital member of the quadruplane. That is Alexander Hamilton, John Lawrence, Hercules Mulligan, and Marquis de Lafayette. And you you forget that he's there. You forget that he is an essential part of the plan. So in the Battle of Yorktown, this is after George Washington gives Hamilton his debriefings and wishes him luck on his, on his fight, um, and they all kind of spread out and do their own thing. They were planning this from the beginning to have a man in each part of the country where the war was happening. And their inside man was Hercules Mulligan. So when he comes out, explosive, like, it's in your face. And I I don't know why, but I love that. Like, I love that energy, that explosive boom. Like, it's just, it's high energy, it's high voltage, it's loud, it's aggressive, it's in your face, it's unapologetic. And there's so much just raw, genuine energy coming out of Oak during that entire, like, you're in the spotlight now. You know what I mean? Like, this is you. This is your moment right here. You're the reason why this entire plan was able to be as successful as it was. And they became victorious at the end of it. So it's all beneficial. And it's just like, you know, when you look at somebody and you just like, damn, that looks good. Then that's, 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 that's the wave that we're on with uh, Battle of Yorktown. Because he is just in your face. And I, I just, I just, I can't get over it. I love how much, I love how raw it is. Um, but, and then you get to act two. And I also didn't know that he played James Madison. Because his, his demeanor as Hercules Mulligan is so, like, badass and gritty and broody. He's a brute. He's a brute. And then James Madison is just like, I don't know. I mean, like he's a sickly old, just snobby, uptight, pretentious bean. Like, I just, I don't even know what to call him. Like, he's just a dud. I don't know. But um, so again, that shows the tremendous amount of range that these characters have who are doing the double roles. Um and 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 the first time watching it, I mean, I didn't have my glasses on, so I couldn't really tell. But I thought it was two different people, just like I thought Jasmine Jones was two different people. Um, Anthony Ramos is kind of very obvious. He's playing a nine-year-old child in the first little bit of Act Two, and he's like five foot ten. I don't know. Uh, so yeah, he was obvious, and um, of course, uh, Davy Diggs was obvious. You can't hide that much hair even if you tried. Um, but I think the, it, that just shows the range that these actors have, that they were able to take on such diverse roles simultaneously with only 
what, what, how long is the intermission? Like an hour or so? Uh, so, and, and it just shows that level of professionalism that they were able to do that without, well, obviously it took some practicing, training. They didn't just wake up and was like, oh, yeah, I can do this. It obviously took some time. But I'm just impressed by that amount of range, not even just vocally, but even acting as well. Um, let's see. Another one of my favorite songs, we're going to dive into, well, no, let's not go to Act 2 just yet. Let's, let's keep it at Act 1. Uh, Dear Theodosia is a beautiful song about parents and their children, their newborn children. You come in, this is right after the big fight scene, and, and the U.S. is finally an independent nation. The, the King George in England has accepted this. He's not happy about it, but it is what it is. And you, you zoom in to Aaron Burr, who's meeting his daughter for the first time. His daughter's name is Theodosia, named after her mother. Um, and a side note, uh, Aaron Burr was having an affair with a married woman whose name was also Theodosia. And her husband dies in the war, and then they get married, and then they have this baby. Um, I think that's hilarious how many affairs were going on back, back then. But anyway, he's meeting his daughter for the first time. And I remember seeing a clip of Leslie Odom doing And shout out to Leslie Odom. Because my man's is vocals is 100% every time. No fail. And I, and I love Aaron Burr. I'm going to go into Aaron Burr in a minute, but we're going to talk about Dear Theodosia real quick. So I remember seeing a clip of Leslie Odom Jr. talking about, um, you know, originally uh, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton weren't on stage at the same time performing this song. Um, and then they were just practicing together one time, and they was like, huh, oh, that works, and we're just going to keep doing it. Um, so when you watch it, they're performing it side by side on stage. And then there's a moment where the lights go dark on Aaron Burr's side of the stage, and it shines the light on Hamilton. Hamilton's talking about his son, Philip, who he's meeting for the very first time, in the similar sense that Burr is meeting his daughter for the first time. But Leslie Odom was saying, like, okay, I have to find something to do while, you know, Lin-Manuel is singing his part and he decided to pray over his unborn child's life. Even before his, his real-life wife was pregnant or had a child, he was already praying over her during that scene. So every time he would perform that and he would stop and pray, he would be praying for his unborn child. And then when he had her, it is, it's real cute. But um, the, the harmonics in Dear Theodosia are breathtaking and I don't want nobody to come from my neck and I'm pretty sure this is common knowledge Lin-Manuel Miranda is not the in in comparison to the other vocalist on stage he's like a four right on a scale of one to ten he's like a four and a half so he has vocals he has range but if you're comparing him to Leslie Odom who has superb vocals and wonderful range, then, yeah, he's like a four. Um, and Leslie would be like a solid ten. And this is my opinion. I'm being... <coughs> I'm sorry. I'm being biased. Because if we're comparing Leslie Odom to Jasmine Jones, Leslie Odom is a good 7.5. And Jasmine Jones is a good 12, 13. Off the charts, her range is impeccable 
in comparison. She's probably, no, let me stop, because Chris Jackson can sing his ass off. I would put uh, Jasmine Jones and Chris Jackson right there, tag team, side by side, vocal-wise. I'm talking vocals here, because this nigga Chris Jackson, one last time, which is the final... Uh, the final performance of George Washington in the show. He comes up again just briefly, you know, as an extra, but he isn't doing any more dialogues after one last time. And when I tell you this man blew it out the... Oof. I saw that, and I was like, damn. Because he's a big... He's a big dude. So if you think Oak is, like, beefy, uh, Chris Jackson is, like, tall and swole. Like, he's a big, he's a good, like, 6'5". I'm guesstimating. He's a good, he's up there. 6'5", 350, he is gigantor. And he sings beautifully. <laughs> like, he is a humongous guy, but he sings so well. And I can't even put a word on it. Like, it's great. So, he's up there. Jasmine Jones has range out the ass, out the wazoo. She can hit the low notes. She can hit the high notes. She can sound like a grown-ass woman and a little-ass kid at the exact same time. She's up there. So if we're doing on a scale of 1 to 10, because Davey Diggs doesn't really sing, but he does harmonize. Oak doesn't really sing, but he does harmonize. You know what I'm saying? And then you got the dude who plays King George. Um, I can't think of his name, but he does play... Uh, Stefan, not Stefan, I'm bullshitting. Kristoff in Frozen. If I'm not mistaken, that's the same person. Um, he's up there. He has range, and he is. He makes me extremely uncomfortable with his King George performance. I'm not a fan of the dribble, of the spit, of all of that saliva build up in his bottom. I didn't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. Makes me cringe. I can't even look at it. Um, but he's up there. So, just really quick, we're gonna rank these guys. We're going to put Chris Jackson and Jasmine Jones. They at the number one spot. Then you got King George. I can't tell you what his name is. I'm sorry. Um, Renee, who plays Eliza, her and Philippa So. I put them side by side because Philippa So has an angelic voice. It's graceful. It's pretty. You know, it's like a Disney princess. Renee's voice is a bit harsh, it's harsher than Philippa. Let me rephrase, because Renee's voice is very, very powerful. It, it carries. It, she can carry her own weight. When she's doing Satisfied, you know, she is really pushing that shit out. You know what I'm saying? On some Terrence Howard shit. So her voice is powerful, whereas Philippa So's voice is soft. You know, it's, it's, it's like... Creamy peanut butter type shit. <laughs> um, so there, I'd put them side by side for show for show. Um, the only reason why I would put Jasmine Jones above Renee or Philippa is because she's a powerhouse. Like she is really belting. Like she is, she's giving it everything she got, and she can still give you more type shit. So that's where they're at. And then the men kind of fall in. The rest of the men kind of fall in because, like I said, Oak doesn't sing, but he harmonizes. Davey Diggs doesn't sing, but he harmonizes. And then you got Leslie Odom. I put him, I put him right underneath. 
And I know, and I know, and I'm being biased. I'm being biased, but I'm being honest because Leslie Odom Jr. is probably he. Well, let me let me go on the record for saying that he's my favorite out of the entire original cast. It's Leslie Odom Jr. Number one all the way around. I'm I adore David Diggs' hair because I, I have a thing for dudes who have like a lot of hair. So that's that's me on that one. And Oak, like I said, he's a beefcake. I don't even like big dudes, but he's he's a big dude, and I and I like that. But but Leslie Odom, he has sophistication, he has elegance, he has class, he has posh, he has posture. He's just this all around like super upscale guy that's not like a snob about it. He's not like raunchy or entitled or arrogant. You know what I'm saying? He seems like. <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, the election of 1800, which is like the third to the last, fourth to the last song of the entire program, (laughs) it is Aaron Burr running for president. And he's running around, handing people flyers. He's campaigning his own campaign. He's doing everything himself. The the extras in the crowd (laughs) are saying things about Burr. And I was just going to say those exact same things to describe Leslie. These motherfuckers said... I like that Aaron Burr. I can't believe we're here with him. He seems approachable. Like, you can grab a beer with him. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's Leslie Odom Jr. right there. He's, he's just a down-to-earth, regular-degular guy trying to do the right thing the right way. And since we are finally broke the ice on the whole Leslie Odom Jr. thing, let's go ahead and talk about him real quick. Um, so I did a little bit about me. I did choir from, like, fifth grade up until I graduated high school. Uh, I've always been a choir child. I've always been in band. I've always been involved in music or musical programs within my school. And then I would do them on my own, just casually writing songs, you know, singing punk rock music because I was into that shit in elementary school. I mean, middle school and high school. And, And then after I left college, I kind of fell off of that for a minute. And I kind of forgot that that part of myself existed at one point in time. So when I saw Hamilton for the first time, and I saw this beautifully diverse cast. So when I first heard it, I thought it was all white people. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's, a, it's a story about the evolution or the revolution of the United States. So I assumed it was all white people. When I first heard it, that was in 2016. I had no idea how diverse this cast was until I watched it. I saw all of these beautiful black and brown people, you know, this, this incredibly diverse cast pop up, singing songs immaculately, rabbit, like, I can't even put the words together. My mind is, is running a mile a minute. Um, and I absolutely fell in love with Leslie Odom Jr. as Aaron Burr, because even though, like I said before, this doesn't apply to me directly because I'm a person of color, and this is this is these are white people's stories being told by blacks and Hispanics and you know probably biracial people, whatever the case may be. That's not the point. But I could sympathize with the Leslie Odom Jr. version of Aaron Burr. Because I don't know anything about the real Aaron Burr other than what was told to me in this performance, but I could relate to Leslie Odom's Jr. Leslie Odom Jr.'s interpretation 
of Aaron Burr. He was just a guy trying to do the right thing the right way. And I know that he is depicted as the bad guy in Hamilton, but I don't think that he is. I don't believe that Aaron Burr, as portrayed by Leslie Odom Jr., is a villain, even though he's put in that position countless times throughout the performance. He, he is patient. He is calm. He is determined, and he is self-motivated to get in a position of power and do right by the people of the United States. That's all he was trying to do. And here come this nigga Hamilton, no regards for people's mental state, sanity, well-being. This nigga was willing to fight, die, kill. He's extremely arrogant, over-aggressive. He always has to prove a point. He's constantly, constantly, constantly questioning and counteracting everything that he does. He is 100% rebellious, which, yes, that did lead to a lot of things that are beneficial, quote-unquote, as far as developing the country in the very beginning when it was first being developed, but you're irrational, and you're high-strung, and you have just zero regard for anything that anybody tells you unless it's George Washington. You have no regards over how your wife feels, what she thinks. You make decisions without consulting her, which at that time, you didn't have to consult your wife for anything. So, okay. But you know how crazy she is about you. So she would, And she wants to be involved with what you're involved with. She's extremely supportive. You don't give a shit about that. And you got this nigga Aaron Burr stressing and constantly worrying, having anxiety attacks and shit. Like, he doesn't know what the fuck's going on. And it's just like, bro, I actually feel kind of sorry for you. Because here you are, a young man who had to fight just like Alexander Hamilton had to fight. You had to come up the same way he had to come up. Actually, no. You had it a little bit easier because apparently Aaron Burr came from money but everybody in his family kept dying, so he was in school, and he finished early so he could keep on his parents' legacy, or whatever the case may be. Alexander Hamilton is a proud immigrant from the Caribbean islands, born of Scottish descent, who came to the United States to make a name for himself, not to fulfill a legacy, not to keep his family name you know, alive and well, but to make a name for himself. So everything that Alexander Hamilton does is for selfish gains or selfish reasons. And yes, Aaron Burr never made clear what his goals and aspirations were. He never let anybody knew. He never let anybody know what was going on in his head. But I think that's a good strategy. The, the main quote from Aaron Burr in Hamilton, talk less smile more. That translates to move in silence. You don't let your enemies know what you're planning. You don't even let your associates or acquaintances know what you're planning. He, that, that may translate again into some serious trust issues, but I can relate to that too because I don't trust nobody and I get that. 
But that translates into you don't let nobody know what moves you're trying to make. And when you get into a position of power where you can make those moves and can't nobody tell you different, then that's what you do. Now, I can see how <laughs> on the outside that looks very villainous. But if you pay attention to the story throughout the entire play, throughout the entire musical, Burr will come out and say that he agrees or he supports decisions that the rebellion is making. He just wants to do them the right way. He doesn't want to be a rebel, but he does want to make change and support the revolution. He just doesn't want to be rebellious about it. And that's fine. You can call him a simp, a snowflake, or whatever. That's okay. I don't see anything wrong with doing things correctly. As long as they get done, then it shouldn't matter. So when you go back to wait for it, he says, I am the one thing. I am the one thing in life that I can control. I can't tell you what so-and-so over there is doing. I can't tell you what the niggas behind me are trying to do. I can only tell you about me. I am inevitable. I am an original. I'm one of a kind, unique, genuine soul and spirit. You're not going to find another one like me, I absolutely guarantee you. I'm not falling behind or running late. And I have to, ooh, I have to tell myself that all the time. I am not falling behind or running late. I see so many people who are in the same lane as me going so much further and so much faster than I'm going. But I want to take my time. I want to make sure that I'm doing this right. I want to make sure that I don't make any mistakes because I don't have time to backtrack and fix something that I may have broken because I'm trying to catch up with the nigga next to me. I'm taking my time. I have patience. I can do that. I'm not standing still. I am lying in wait. I got to watch to make sure the other niggas on the road ain't going to crash into me. They're going fast as fuck. But I'm taking my time. If they're not careful, they're going to get into an accident. They're going to get caught up in some bullshit. They're going to get in some trouble. And they got to fight even harder to get their way out. But if I take my time and move gradually, think about my next step before I take it, I can avoid all of that. And at the end, I'll be ahead of them. Because they got to clean up their mess I ain't never made a mess to begin with. And here's the thing that really fucked me up about this play. Here's the thing that really fucked me up. The, the, the election of 1800, which I'm not giving away no spoilers because they low-key spoil it right at the smack dab beginning. And if you're a historian, like I said, you already knew this shit. It is Aaron Burr versus Thomas Jefferson. And this nigga's Thomas. He's the villain. He's the real villain in this goddamn story. You don't see him until act two, but this nigga is heartless. He does not give a fuck about nobody but his goddamn self. And then you got James Madison co-signing, cheerleading, gassing this nigga head up. He's the villain. I don't care what nobody said. But you got Aaron Burr, you got Thomas Jefferson, and then this nigga Hamilton. He had just lost his son. He's going through a lot of shit. He is just trying to, like, come back to himself 
and find some peace. For the first time in his life, he is trying to find peace. But everybody in, the, in New York is like, hey, um, Alexander, who are you voting for? Um, you know, I really like Burr, but I kind of fuck with Jefferson, too. But, you know, you're, you're, whoever you vote for, that's who I'm going to vote for. People at this time were followers. No one fought for themselves. No one believed in thinking outside the box. They just wanted to do what everybody else was doing. So this nigga Hamilton come out, I guess, at a press conference. That's how I envisioned it. Excuse me. And he was like, um, I'm going to say the lyrics for you. This is the election of 1800. This nigga Alexander Hamilton said, the people are asking to hear my voice. The country is facing a difficult choice. But if you were to ask me who I'd promote, Jefferson has my vote. I said, this dirty motherfucker. I never agreed. I never agreed with Jefferson once. We fought on like 75 different fronts. But when all is said and all is done, Jefferson has beliefs, Burr has none. And then he's going to have the audacity to go, well, I'll be damned. Like, no, that's dirty as hell. That is the dirtiest shit because Aaron Burr is the first person that Alexander Hamilton meets when he comes to New York in, what, 1776? I think that's where the story starts, 1776. So that's the first nigga that you meet. You met Thomas Jefferson, I think 1781 is where Act 2 starts. So, and from the get-go, you did not like this nigga. You even said it yourself. I've never agreed with Jefferson once. But when all is said and all is done, Jefferson has beliefs and Burr has none. You know that this nigga agree with everything you agree with. You, he ain't never came out and said it, but he's implied it. And maybe that's just me being biased, but you can see it. In the, he wouldn't have fought in the Revolutionary War if he didn't believe in those same beliefs. He wouldn't have... The two of y'all wouldn't have gone down the exact same career path if y'all didn't believe in the same shit. Both of them were in the army. Aaron Burr pitched to be George Washington's right hand before Hamilton did, and Hamilton got the goddamn job. How bogus is that? Both of them were in the Revolutionary War. Burr was a lieutenant colonel in the Revolutionary War, leading men to fight. Why would he do that? If he didn't believe in the same shit <laughs> that you believed in, both of y'all were lawyers in New York City, and both of y'all were on the team to help. Well, both of them were. He came to, Hamilton came to Byrne, was like, I need help with the Constitution. He was like, eh, you, you biting off more than you can chew. Again, only thing Burr's trying to do is do things the right way, do the right things the right way. But Hamilton is impatient. He ain't got no time to just be sitting and waiting around for some shit to pop off and be like normal. So he's trying to speed the process. But Burr is like, you got to chill the fuck out. And he ain't trying to hear that shit. So this nigga writes until he can't write no more to defend the Constitution of the United States. So y'all are fighting for the same thing. He's just a bit more patient than you are. That's it. And yeah, I probably am being a little biased, but I really don't care. Um, but it just, that made me so mad. <laughs> like, you are, and then this nigga Thomas Jefferson is like, 
you're not going to be my vice president, which uh, historically speaking, he was for the four of the eight years that Jefferson served as president. Burr was vice president for the first four. So at some point, Jefferson changes the law that says the runner up candidate will become vice president because he just petty as shit like that. And that's just how he think. Um, and then you dive into the villainy of Aaron Burr. It's, it's at the end of the rope. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. All I was trying to do was do the right thing the right way. And this ignorant ass bitch, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton, completely, he has it in his head that Alexander Hamilton has sabotaged every single, let's look up some lyrics real quick. He has it in his head that Alexander Hamilton has sabotaged every single opportunity that he had to win just by existing. And that's, that's this, this border, this, this, this raging hatred towards him. And it just eats away at his soul until he can't take it anymore. So your obedient servants is the fourth from the last song in the performance. And let me tell you, this shit right here, I don't know if you guys are on TikTok or not, and I'm not even sure if TikTok is even going to be available by the time I post this episode. But if you are, and if it is, and if you get a chance, uh, the audio for this song is floating around TikTok. If you do a hashtag Hamilfans or something like that, I'm pretty sure you'll find it. And people use this as the ultimate villain's song. And if you think about it, it low-key fits for every single villain that you could possibly think of. This, this first verse, at least, will fit for any, I guarantee you, think about your favorite supervillain, whether it be an MCU, a DC, uh, uh, any kind of you know political show, anything, any villain, think about that person and then listen to these lyrics and tell me that it doesn't fit like a perfect puzzle piece. He says, Dear Alexander, he's writing a letter, I am slow to anger, but I told the line, as I reckon with the effects of your life on mine, I look back on where I failed, and in every place I checked, the only common thread has been your disrespect. Now you call me immoral, a dangerous disgrace. If you've got something to say, name a time and place, face to face. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, A. Burr. Let me tell you something about this song right here, because the shit is beautiful. Um, <laughs> I am slow to anger, but I told the line as I reckon with the effects of your life on mine. I am patient. I am cool, calm, and collected. And I present myself with a level of grace and professionalism. And I have done so my entire professional career. But you have gotten under my skin into my head and foiled any type of achievements that I've set for myself anytime I try to come up, your little measly ass is right there ready to pull the rug from underneath my feet and I'm sick of it. I look back on where I failed and in every place I've checked, the only common thread has been your disrespect every single time and I gotta clap it out. 
every single time I try to do something, anything, it doesn't matter. I wanted to be a lawyer, you wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to join the Revolutionary War, you wanted to join the Revolutionary War. I finished professional, not professional, I finished university, four-year program in two years. Y'all little measly ass said that you want to finish university in two years. Why? Why are you trying to be like me so bad? Like, it, it just it just crawls into my fucking skin and scratches the shit out of my soul. The only common thread has been your disrespect. You have not done nothing to benefit me since the day that I met you. Everything has been about your benefit and what you want to do to put yourself on a higher pedestal, and I'm sick of it. You call me immoral? A dangerous disgrace? You call me immoral? <laughs> you call me dangerous? Coming from a nigga who couldn't wait to start knocking niggas' heads off. You were the first one, you were the first one willing to die on that battlefield with no regards to your wife. You didn't even change your mind until you found out she was pregnant. And even still, you, I'm, I'm convinced. <laughs> I'm convinced that uh, Alexander Hamilton set his son up to get killed. But that's another story for another day. We're going to talk about that later. You have no regards of anybody else but yourself. But I'm the dangerous disgrace. Um, yeah, I may have been having an affair with a married woman. But at least I waited until her husband died before I had a baby with her. You were having mistresses. And then... You published the mistress's letters to save your own name when wasn't nobody even finna snitch on you. But I'm the disgrace. This is like a bad gossip column. Like, you got the fucking nerve to call me. <laughs> you have the fucking nerve to call me a disgrace. Like, it's a literal slap to the face is obedient servant because it really kind of just winds up the entire performance in this one song and it, it isn't even showing the villainy of Aaron Burr because like I said I'm not convinced that Aaron Burr is the villain he just got fed up with Hamilton's bullshit that's all it is you get you get tired of a nigga coming into your life and fucking up all your shit for 30 years bro you you be ready to shoot him and kill him too it don't even fucking matter when he says, if you got something to say, oh, fuck, I'm stuttering. When he says, if you got something to say, name a time and place, face to face, that's introducing the idea of a duel. And then Hamilton responds to that letter, Mr. Vice President, because he's, again, he's the vice president for 40 years that Jefferson is president. I am not the reason no one trusts you. No one knows what you believe. I will not equivocate on my opinion. I have always worn it on my sleeve. Even if I said what you think I said, you would need to cite a more specific grievance. Here's an itemized list of 30 years of disagreements. I have not been shy. I am just a guy in the public eye trying to do my best for our republic. I don't want to fight, but I won't apologize for doing what's right. Let me tell you how much bullshit that is. Because first of all, Alex, you're not about doing anything right. You're about doing everything quickly and nonstop, which is the last song of Act One. Burr says, why do you write like you're running out of time? Write day and night like you're running out of time. 
every day you write like you're running out of time. You're impatient. So you got to do everything lickety split, quick, fast, and in a hurry because you don't know what the fuck is going to happen tomorrow. You got a hundred other stuff to do. So that whole book, oh, God, I burped. I'm sorry. Um, that whole bullshit ass line of I'm just trying to do the best for our public. I want to apologize for doing what's right. You ain't been doing shit right since the beginning. You just been doing shit that's right for you, not right for nobody else. But again, like I said, take that first verse. Take Aaron Burr's verse in your obedient servant and apply it to any villain that you could think of. The Joker from Batman, Thanos from the MCU. Um, I see people on TikTok do Disney villains. I've seen Scar. I've seen Cruella DeVille. I've seen Ursula. Um, I was even thinking about Killmonger personally, but it applies so well because villains usually try to um, get sympathy from their followers by saying that they fought so hard to get somewhere and they just couldn't get it because the hero or the protagonist is sabotaging them somehow. And that's usually a game that the villain tries to play is they want to be... They want, to have, they want people to have pity on them. They want people to feel sorry for them. And they use that sympathy to their advantage. So whenever their plan gets foiled or, you know, something goes wrong or, um, you know, they didn't get, you know, they didn't accomplish what they wanted to get, they usually blame the hero. The crazy part about some supervillains, though, is that they have this mentality that nothing that they do is wrong, which is why they always blame the hero. But I think in this particular instance, when it comes to Aaron Burr versus Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr did not do anything wrong. He was literally just trying to do everything right. He just wanted to do it the right way versus Hamilton wanted to do right things, but he was going about them completely the wrong way and they just couldn't see eye to eye on that. They had the same end goal they had the same ending result, but the way that they were trying to get there were two completely different paths, and that's kind of where they clashed against each other. But again, this first verse, I feel like, applies to any supervillain in any supervillain scenario, um, and, and it makes Aaron Burr seem like the crazy one or the bad guy because he has this, this vengeful vendetta against Hamilton when I believe, personally... In actuality, Hamilton is just, like, foiling Burr's plans. And, yes, Aaron Burr never makes clear what his true goals and ambitions are. But you have to assume, and it's terrible to assume, but you have to assume that it's on the same side that Hamilton is fighting for, not against. So the fact that this nigga Hamilton really just said, nah, I ain't finna fuck with you like that because I don't know what you want, is dirty and is really, really, really fucked up. But um, I've been, I've been, I've been rambling here for quite a while, and I appreciate you guys for sticking around and having a listen. This has just been a very um, open discussion on some of my favorite songs from the musical Hamilton. Um, kind of where my obsession began, where it is now. Like I said, I listen to this soundtrack every other day, just about, or at least a couple of songs. And again, if you're on TikTok and if TikTok is still up by the time this episode gets posted, you see those videos of people just randomly singing Hamilton quotes. That's pretty much me on like a weekly basis. But um, I appreciate the listen. Thank you for tuning in. 
And until next time, always remember to talk less and smile more. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it.